All right, so last week we talked a lot about behavior, and of course, if you're talking about sanctification, you have to talk about behavior. And one of the verses we looked at last week was 1 Peter, that, that kind of uncomfortable statement from the lips of Jesus that, or from God, that Peter is quoting that says, uh, be holy, be holy as I am holy. And I want to back up and look at the previous portion of that passage that we sometimes kind of overlook. And Peter says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. In other words, don't live like you used to live when you were ignorant, when you were stupid, when you didn't know, and you hadn't received the gospel. Don't live like that anymore. Then he goes on, he says, but as he who called you is holy, God, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So there's a uh, statement in here that's pretty profound. It's pretty in your face. It's be holy. How? In all your conduct. In all your conduct. In, in, I joke about this all the time. You know, in the Greek, that means in all your conduct. It, it's just in everything you do, whatever you do, morning, evening, uh, waking, sleeping, work, leisure, golf, whatever you do, in all your conduct, be holy. So what's conduct? You know, we, we, last we talked about the word behave and uh, saw that in, in its original Old English form, it had to do with content, what's in you, what in, what's in you coming out of you. And, and as Christians, we know that we have the Holy Spirit within us, and we're going to talk more about that next week. We have the Holy Spirit, so what's in us should come out of us. And the word conduct in the Greek is anastrophe, and it's, it's a word that's used all throughout the New Testament. And it has to do, once again, with behavior, conduct, how you live your life, manner of life, lifestyle. Where does it come from? It comes from the inside out. We are more prone to think of behavior as externally driven. You know, if, if we, we live under rules, we live under laws, and in our country right now, we're all fighting over who gets to make the laws. Because laws, we think, control behavior. And if I get to establish the laws, I can control behavior. But if you're a parent, what do you know about that? Doesn't work. It, it works kind of, but your kids have their own will, their own way, and you can make all the laws you want, and your kids will find ways to get around your laws because it, it's from the inside out. And when your kids get old enough to move away from you, that's when you find out what they really believe and what they've really thought and what their real behavior is because the inside comes out. So this idea of conduct is huge. And, and I ran across this definition of conduct, anastrophe, and it says, the ways in which holy living shows itself. And I, and I, I like that because it begins on the inside, holy living. You know, how does it manifest itself? How, how do people know that you're holy? I can tell you I'm holy and you may or may not believe me, depending on how well you know me, but if you watch me, if you hang, hang around with me, if, if you spend time with me, you'll be able to tell whether I am or I'm not. Um, one of the things that, that I've learned to do over the years, and you've learned this as well, if you've been around the church very long, is you, you learn what holy behavior looks like. Now, the definition of that comes from a lot of different sources. Usually it comes from the the religious group with whom you've decided to associate yourself. So here at Christ Chapel, we, we have a definition of holiness, and it comes out in a lot of different ways. You know, be in a small group, uh, serve, 
serve on parking posse, work in the children's ministry, uh, go on a mission trip, tithe, give. Um, we, we have these definitions of holiness, and I'm not saying they're wrong, but we learn what the definition is based on the context in which we live, and we learn to live according to that definition. But as we've seen, is that necessarily holy living? No, it's just living up to a standard that's been provided from the outside, but it doesn't necessarily change the inside. And that's why we're sometimes shocked when we see people who've kept all the definitions we've provided, and then their marriage implodes, or the guy gets addicted to porn, or he's got, you know, he leaves his wife, or she leaves him, and you know, it's, we're like, well, how did that happen? They were such a godly couple. No, they were living an external godliness, but it really wasn't internal. It wasn't from the inside out. So this idea of behavior is huge. And Peter says, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from that empty life. Now that word life there is the same anastrophe, from an empty conduct, an empty manner of life. What's he talking about? Before you came to Christ, you were saved by Christ as a gift from God. And God sent his son. That's the high price. He paid the ransom. He sent his son to die for you, to die for me in order to save you from that empty life, that empty anastrophe that you inherited from your ancestors. You were pulled out of that. You were saved out of that. So this idea of conduct is huge. There is to be a change in my behavior. Um, and we know that. We inherently know that as, as Christians. We know that we're to live differently. We're, what I'm pushing back against is, is what I believe is a, a steady diet in my life and probably in your life, because I think it's, it's been part of the church for way too long, uh, a steady diet of just behavior, what some call behavior modification, just change the way you live. And it, it's all externally based. It's all you doing it, but it's not necessarily through the power of the Holy Spirit. And sanctification is, at the end of the day, the power of the Holy Spirit doing what only the Holy Spirit can, you, you can do. So there is to be a change in my behavior, but we have to ask the question, how? How do we do it? What's the source of that? I am to live differently. You are to live differently. And I can honestly stand here and say, without pride, that I do live differently than I lived 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, God has been at work in me. I can see that fruit. And maybe you can see that fruit, but it's not as important that you see it as he sees it. You know, my behavior may not be as apparent to you as I would like it to be, my change in behavior, but it is important to me that God sees the change in behavior because God looks at the heart, right? You may look at me and go, well, you don't seem that much different than 10 years ago. But God knows my heart. God knows the changes going on in me. And he knows that it's because of him that those changes have taken place. I don't get the credit. He gets the credit. So Peter goes on in chapter 3 and he says, keep your anastrophe, your conduct, before the Gentiles honorable. Why is that important? Why is it important that our lifestyle change? It's, it's because when we live among the lost, when we live among our friends, family members, co-workers who don't know Jesus Christ, the way we live, if it's empowered by the Holy Spirit, is captivating. Now, it's not always attractive. People don't always like it. But there's something about it that they want to know more. Where does that come from? Why do you react the way you do? How come you aren't prone to this? I remember years ago when I was working in Dallas and I was in advertising, I just started with a new company and <clears throat> didn't know anybody. And it's a, that awkward first week where you come in and everybody's talking and you're kind of the odd guy out. And I would just 
get some coffee, go to my desk and go to work. And everybody would go to lunch and you'd be the guy sitting there and, you know, okay, I guess I'll just eat lunch here at my desk. And then uh, one, one day this guy comes up and he goes, hey, you want to go to lunch? I'm like, sure. And he goes, come on, we're going to lunch. And I'm like, great. I said, where are you going? He goes, we're going to this strip club across the street. And I thought he was joking. I was like, yeah, yeah, where are you going? He goes, we're going to the strip club across the street. I thought you were going to lunch. He goes, oh, they have a great buffet. You know, that's like, I went, um, no, I, I don't think I want to go to lunch. He goes, why not? I said, I don't want to eat lunch in a strip club. And he goes, what are you too good for us? And it, it just, you know, I was now in that dilemma of, well, no, no, I'm not too good for you. He said, okay, I'll go. Well, I didn't. And I just said, well, no, I, I just, that's not something I'm going to go do. I, I don't go to strip clubs, and I'm certainly not going to go eat lunch at a strip club. And he goes, fine. And he just walks off. And it was this weird time of over the next few days and weeks of I didn't get invited to lunch. You know, I think they went there every day. Um, but, it, but we are to live differently. It doesn't mean they're going to like it doesn't mean they're going to approve of it, but they will be captivated by it because ultimately that same guy came back to me and says, why, why didn't you want, why don't you go to strip clubs? And we ended up having conversations about it, you know, about what I believe and who I was and why I don't do certain things. I, I used to go, but I don't anymore. And here's why. I'd like to say that that guy came to faith. He didn't. Um, and I'd like to say that we became very close friends. We weren't. We were just polar opposites. But my behavior definitely had an impact on him. You know, he began to change the way he talked in front of me. He began to change the way, the things that we discussed because he knew that I was different. He didn't necessarily like it, wasn't attracted to it, didn't want to be like me, but he knew what not to say in front of me. See, our behavior really is important. And God knows our behavior is important. That's why, again, and Paul, Paul says the same thing. He says, throw off your old sinful nature. Get rid of it. It's not who you are. It's who you used to be. Get rid of your former way of anastrophe, your former way of conduct, the way you lived your life, the, your behavior, which is corrupted by lust and deception. That is not who you are anymore. This word is used repeatedly by Peter and Paul. He goes on and, and Peter says, since all these things are to melt away in this manner, the, this world, everything you know, everything you see and use and taste and touch and, and you take part in in this world is going to go away one day. This is all fleeting. This is all temporary. He says, based on that, what sort of people must we be conducting our lives, anastrophe, same word, in holiness and godliness while waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? How should we live differently? Conducting our lives with holiness, with godliness, waiting for what? The return of the Lord. It's that idea that we looked at last week of focusing your eyes on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's our focus. That's our home. That's our citizenship. So it should change the way we conduct our lives. But the challenge, and, and guys, the whole reason we're doing this series, and I, I'm hoping it's getting through, I think it's getting through, is that we are here for a reason, and we are to live spectacularly different lives than those around us. 
you know, if, if, if I were to take two of you and, and put you in a lineup, you know, get 20 people, just random people out in the community, maybe people you work with, and I stood you up here on the stage and we did a lineup, you know, which one's the Christian? How would we tell? Just standing here, you, you couldn't. But if I could spend time with you, I think I might be able to tell based on conduct, based on behavior, consistency of behavior. But in order for that to happen, I would have to see you 24-7. I'd have to watch you at home, at work, when you're by yourself, when you're at your computer, when your kids have gone to sleep, your wife has gone to sleep, and you're watching TV by yourself. That's when I would really know who you really are. Not the hidden you, not the perfected you. You know, you and I both know how to come to church, right? And I don't mean how to, you know, how to get here. You know how to look when you step out of the car. You and your wife can have a fight on the way here. You can be screaming at your kids because they made you late yet again. And you all get out of the car and the happy face comes on, right? And somebody walks up and goes, how are you doing? Great, great. We're great, great. Yeah, how are you? Great, great. You know, and it, you're both lying through your teeth. You're angry at your wife, you're mad at your kids, you didn't want to come to church, you wanted to stay home, and you, but I'm great. We know how to look holy, but not necessarily act holy from the inside out. So again, this, this phrase, the ways in which your holy living shows itself. That's what anastrophe is. That's what he means when he says, conduct yourselves. But here's the problem, we focus on the what. Okay, Ken, well, tell me what I need to do. Tell, tell me how my holy living can show up. What, just give me five keys, five tips, five steps, three this, seven that. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Because we always focus on the what, the ways, the how. But really the how is quite different. The how is, again, from the inside out. How do I live a holy life? How do I show what's in me? How do I let what's in me out of me? The Holy Spirit. And again, we're going to talk more about that next week, but this is where the rubber meets the road. This is the difference between you and the guy next to you at work who's not saved, your neighbor who isn't in Christ, who may look more godly than you do, who may appear to love his wife more than you do, and maybe he does. I don't know. But the idea is, how do we change the way we live? And the real answer is, you don't. God does. God changes the way you live. The what and the how are not the same thing. So what I want to do is I want to I look at three scenarios, three encounters from the New Testament real quickly to kind of set this up and to show how much we gravitate towards, just, just tell me the what. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to be, do to be saved. Tell me what I'm supposed to do to be holy. Just tell me and I'll do it. Well, let's look at this. You know the story in, in Acts of... The two disciples who are in jail, and there's a miracle that happens, and the gates swing open, and they walk out, and the jailer is in a panic because not only did their jails open up, everybody's jail door opened up, and suddenly all the prisoners he knows are going to run away, and he's going to be held responsible. And he says something to these two men. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? He knew who these guys were. He knew what they had been preaching. He knew what they had been teaching. And he wants to know, how can I be saved? So listen to the question. What must I do to be saved? 
Then there's the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, this, this question is out there. What do I need to do to make God love me? What do I need to do to get to heaven? What do I, you know, depending on your background and where you come from, it's phrased a little bit differently, but it's what must I do to make God love me? Then there's the expert in the religious law who is likely a scribe. He was an expert in the Mosaic law and he comes to Jesus and he asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Three different encounters, two of them with Jesus, one of them with Paul and Silas, who've been set free from jail, but all three are asking the same question. What must I do? It's the way we're wired. It's, it's the way we think. What do I have to do? And it's really interesting if you start looking at the answers. As Christians, we, we think, well, we know what the answer is. But, but look what happens here. The expert in religious law, he comes to Jesus and he's, the phrase is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Where did that come from? From this guy. Because Jesus asked him, what do you think? You asked me a question. What, what, what's your... Jesus was the king of answering a question with a question. Somebody come with a question, you go, what do you think? And he gives the answer. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This guy was an expert in the law. He knew what the law said. So Jesus says, well, go do it and you'll live. Now, here's what's amazing about this little encounter is, and I've never thought about this. Why didn't Jesus say, believe in me? Why didn't Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me? Well, first of all, he hadn't even gone to the cross yet. He hadn't died. He hadn't been buried. He hadn't been resurrected. This is pre-cross. So he says, all right, go do this. Why did he say this? He's not telling this guy, this is how you inherit eternal life. He's regurgitating back to him what the guy assumed. He's a scribe. He's an expert. And he's not coming for conversion. He's coming for confirmation. He wants Jesus to say, am I doing it right? Yes, you are. Just keep doing what you're doing. And that's essentially what Jesus says. Because he knows this man is convinced that his way is the right way. Keeping the law doing all the right stuff. So Jesus says, you know, just keep doing that and you'll live. He's not saying this is a way to salvation. He's saying, this is what you believe. So just keep doing it. But it's really not how you get eternal life or inherit eternal life. How about the rich young ruler? He says, you know the commandments. This is Jesus speaking back to him. So the guy says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus goes, well, you know, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness and honor your father and mother. Now, by my count, that's five out of ten of the commandments. He left five out. Why? Well, we really don't know, but the assumption by many commentators is these five were particularly important to this guy. He says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and do this. And what's the guy say? I do, I do all that. And then Jesus hammers him, and he goes, well, one thing you, you, you left out, one thing you lack he says, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What happens? What's the guy do? He walks away, sad, disappointed. That's not what I wanted to hear. I just told you I did all five of these commandments and now you're giving me something else to do. Well, you asked me, what do I need to do? Go do that and follow me. Jesus knew he wouldn't do it. See, the guy came with an expectation, fully expecting confirmation, 
not looking for conversion. He's looking for, am I doing the right thing? Please tell me yes. What do I need to do? Am I doing enough? And Jesus tells this guy, no. You may be doing these five. I doubt it. I didn't even ask the other five, which all have more to do with your relationship with God the Father. But I know you're not willing to sell all that you have because you're addicted to your wealth. Well, how about this one? Back to the Philippian jailer. What happens here? Paul says to him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Just believe. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to tell us that he rejoiced with all of his household because he had believed. All three asked the same question. This one gets the answer, believe, and he does. And what we learn is that salvation is based on believing, not doing. See, the first two guys who came to Jesus were looking for tasks to do. Tell me what I'm supposed to do to be saved. And Jesus knows, he sees through their hearts, and he knows that you're just looking for something you can earn, and it's not based on earning. This guy gets a different answer. It's based on believing, not doing. Now, what does this have to do with sanctification? It has everything to do with sanctification because those two doctrines are so closely linked. And yet we separate them and say, well, this one's based on faith. This one's based on effort. Jesus Christ saves me, but I got to sanctify me. And that's the bill of goods that most of us have been sold over the years. But Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us that God saved you. How? By his grace. When you believe, not when you did something really cool or when you did something to earn it, it's when you believe. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward. Nobody gets a trophy. Nobody gets brownie points. Nobody gets a pat on the back from God going, man, you, you really did some great stuff this week. It's, it's nobody gets to boast. Why is that true of salvation but not true of sanctification? Well, it is. They're, 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 they're linked. You can't separate the two. It can't become a gift here and not a gift here. It can't be a gift here and a reward here. It's not based on effort. And you may think, well, Ken, you've beaten that horse to death. Well, there's still some blood pumping in its veins. I'm going to keep beating this horse to death because I believe this is the greatest sin that many of us commit is the idea of sanctifying ourselves, trying to make ourselves more holy. What is true of salvation is true of sanctification. If it's by belief, if, if it's by faith to get into the kingdom, it's still by faith and belief to remain in the kingdom, to grow in Christ's likeness. It's still a gift of God. I love this from Paul. He says, you were washed, you were sanctified, past tense, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. It's the work of God. It's not the work of you. It's not the work of man. It's, and it's ongoing. You have been sanctified. You are being sanctified. He's not done with you yet. Are you as holy as you ever will be? Positionally, yes. In other words, if I die today, if you die today, you will go to be with him based on the holiness of Christ. But does it mean that everything I do in this life is holy and completely righteous and no taint of sin? No. It's, it's around me more than I would like to admit. I say things I shouldn't say, think thoughts I shouldn't think. You know, my wife came home yesterday and she had a car just packed with stuff. And I was doing my thing. 
I was relaxing. I deserved to relax. I'd worked hard, and I was watching TV, and she walks in, and she goes, hey, could you help me? Now, let's be honest. Anytime your wife says that to you, what goes through your head? What do you want to say? No. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. No, I don't want to help you. But I knew that wasn't a good answer. After 40 years, I've learned that's not, never a good answer. I said, sure, sure. And I walk out, and she's, she's got a little minivan, and she has a ministry, and it's, it's literally packed to the gills with black bags, and we've got to take them upstairs. And I pick up the first one and literally could barely lift it. I'm like, what, what is in these bags? Well, it's clothes that I'm going to take to Ethiopia to give to to impoverished people. I'm like, why are they so stinking heavy? My wife has a unique ability to take a, any receptacle and fill it as far as she can fill it. It's like the trash. You know, it doesn't matter how, it, it's the size of the bag that matters, not how much weight it can carry. And so these are ridiculous. She goes, well, they, they're 50 pounds each. I'm like, well, Honey, you don't need to put 50 pounds in the bag. Why can't you put 25 in one bag and 25 in the next? She goes, well, this way I can just put them in the carrying case, and this I can get 50 pounds in each bag that goes on the airline. It, it, and, and so, again, my sanctification is gone. I'm just like, this is ridiculous. And I'm carrying these upstairs, there's, and it's like they're pop, repopulating in the van. Every time I come down, there's more. I didn't act sanctified. I didn't feel sanctified. But guess what? I am sanctified. I am set apart. I am holy in God's eyes. I didn't particularly act holy at that point in time. That's why we're being sanctified. We're, he wants to change me. And he, he, I love how God, well, I don't love how God does this, but I, I recognize how God does this. He's always shining the flashlight of his sanctification on me going, hey, Ken, there's an area we need to work on. Hey, Ken, remember you talked about this. Hey, Ken, you remember you want guys to be changed? Well, here's something you need to change, your attitude. And I, again, I don't like it, but it's part of sanctification. It's part of me growing up in my faith and my likeness to Christ. And it's based on faith. It's based on me recognizing what I need. And God never, he never, I never hear him say, Ken, get your proverbial act together. I never, I say it. But he never says it. What he says is, you need to work on your attitude, but I want to help you. I can help you change your reaction to your wife when she comes in and says, can you help me? But first, we got to show that you have a problem with your attitude. And that problem stems from you. It's your old self that you failed to throw away, that you failed to take off. And you're not putting on me. You're not living in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're living in the power of kin. So it's not based on effort. It's based on faith. Sanctification is about faith. Look, look at this. In Hebrews, it says, we have been sanctified, past tense, through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is in the present tense, ongoing tense. We've been sanctified, we are being sanctified. You are being sanctified right now. And you, you may, may be thinking, well, I sure don't feel like it. I'm just ready to go. But God is at work in you. God is speaking to you. His Holy Spirit is working in you and convicting you and showing things to you. And you are being sanctified. We have been, are being, and will one day be completely sanctified. 
He says, for by a single offering, he has perfected all time those who are being sanctified and the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals to us, I'm changing you. I'm doing things in you. He's the one who reveals my attitude problems. He's the one who shows that, hey, you reacted differently than you did last week. You know where that came from? Me. Rejoice in that, Ken. You can be changed. You can be different if you allow me to do it. So the rich young ruler and the expert in Mosaic law, the scribe, they met Jesus when? Prior to the cross. Jesus hadn't died yet. They were living in a context where salvation had a different answer to it. How must I, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the prevailing attitude was just do a lot of good stuff. But what happened? Philippian jailer meets the two disciples when? Post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension, and post-coming of the Holy Spirit. Things were different. It's a different epic. It's the church age. And now it's based on believing, not doing. Now, before Jesus died on the cross, was it ever based on doing? No. Why was Abraham reckoned righteous? Faith. Why was David reckoned righteous? Faith. Go back and read Hebrews chapter 11. It's always been by faith. It's never been based on doing. And yet we want to look at sanctification, make it all about doing, make it all about my behavior, your behavior. What do I need to do? So John 15, it's taken me a while to get here, but I want to look at this chapter really quickly and to set the preface to it. John chapter 15 is part of a section of of the book of John that is what's called the upper room discourse. This is taking place on Thursday night. What's important about Thursday night of the Passion Week? It's the night on which Jesus had the Passover meal with his disciples and he was betrayed by Judas and he's going to go to trial, the first of his trials. It's an important night. He's with his disciples. These words are spoken to his disciples. It's immediately after he's exposed Judas as the traitor and he's walked out of the room. So there's 11 men sitting in front of Jesus. They've shared a Passover meal. He's already told them, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. They've rejected it. They've said, no, 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 that can't happen. It won't happen. And yet now he says to them, and I want you to think about the context. 11 men sitting in a room with Jesus. Judas has just left. He's been tagged by Jesus as the one who will betray me. He's left. They're stunned. And he says, abide in me and I in you. What? What are you you talking about? We read this and we're so comfortable with reading passages, we don't even think about them anymore. We don't even think about the context. And what did the poor disciples hear? He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And they're they're literally, I I have no proof of this, but I know they're sitting there going, what in the world is he talking about? Why did Judas just leave? Why don't we go catch him? If he's going to betray him, let's go catch him. Let's stop him. And he's talking about abiding. And he starts talking about branches and vines. What are you talking about? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, and apart from me you can do nothing. Now, whether they said anything out loud or said anything to one another, they're all sitting there going, we have no clue what you're talking about. We read this and we're like, oh, I get this. Yeah, I know all about this. Let me ask you a question. When you see the words abide in me, what immediately comes into your mind? Is, is it a commandment or an invitation? I'll answer for you. For most of it, it's a commandment. Abide in me. 
What we hear Jesus saying to us is, Dad Gummit Ken, would you abide in me for the first time in your stinking sorry life? I saved you. I sent my son to die for you. Would you abide in me for once in your life? What is wrong with you? But that's not what this says. This isn't a threat. It's not a commandment. It's an invitation. And if you read this passage that way, it'll change the way you think about how you live your life. These men were stunned. These men couldn't believe what had just happened. These men were still shocked that Jesus was going to die. These men were, their world was reeling and rocking. And he says, hey guys, abide in me. And yet they've just heard him said, I'm going to die. Wow. How, how, I, that doesn't make any sense, Lord. And then he goes on, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Haven't we done enough? We've been with you for three plus years and haven't we endured everything with you? And haven't we, Lord, what else do we need to do? Abide in me, abide in me so that you can bear much fruit. See this, this, this passage is so important guys. Because Jesus is offering to you the same thing he's offering to these guys. He says, abide, abide in me. What does that mean? It literally means to live in, to continue with, to remain a part of, to stay with. But we turn it into a work. We turn it into an effort, a task to do. I, I, I got to abide. I got to do something to abide. But it's all about relationship. Now, why did he use the metaphor of the branch and the vine? Well, they lived in an agrarian society, and it's something simplistic that these guys could get. Now, I challenge you, sometime today when the sun comes up, you go outside, and you look at a tree, and you see a branch with leaves on it, and you see a trunk to which the branch is attached. I want you to find and take a picture of the one branch that is really working at abiding. Which branch is the really abiding branch? Which one has sweat coming out of its bark? Which one is really doing a great job at abiding? See, Jesus is painting a very simplistic metaphor for these guys that they might be able to understand that a branch abides just because that's what it does. It just abides. It just remains. It just stays. Who has just walked out of the room? Judas. If there's 11 guys left, and he starts talking about abiding, staying, remaining. Who just left? Judas. And he's trying to let them know he never was a part of me. He never was a part of us. He never truly believed. He never really was part of the, the vine. He's gone. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about what you need to do. Because he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. See, fruit is the product of abiding, not striving. But I've lived my entire Christian life, for the most part, striving to produce fruit. Today's going to be the day. Today I'm going to do it. Today I'm going to be faithful. Today I'm going to be patient, loving, kind, whatever. But fruitfulness comes from faithfulness. It's the byproduct of a relationship with Christ, and it comes from the power of Christ that lives within me and lives within you. So he says, abide in me and I in you. Now look at this, John chapter 14, the chapter right before this. He tells the disciples, I'm going to ask the Father, he's going to give you a helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you, but he's going to be in you. Now, what has he just told them? I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Do they get it? Not yet. 
and he's going to come live in you, and it's going to be a game changer. And that's what happened at Pentecost. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Wait a minute. I thought you were leaving. I am, but I'm going to come. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Because I live, you'll also live. Huh? What? How? Then he says, in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Now, here's a really interesting thing about this, this whole thing about the Holy Spirit and when I was a kid growing up in my dad's church, I was told by my parents that if you accept Jesus Christ, he comes to live in your heart. Okay, great. I did that. And then later on, as I got older, I realized the Holy Spirit comes to live in my heart. Wait a minute. My dad said it was Jesus. Which one is it? Both. What? Yeah, Jesus lives in you and the Holy Spirit lives in you. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to be in you and I'm going to be in you. Well, which one is it? Do I have Jesus or the Holy Spirit? Yes. I get them both. I get them both. And the cool thing is, I get all three. Look at this. Paul writes to the Romans, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, well, gosh, Paul, which is it? Yes. You, you got both. You got the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Then he goes on. But if, the, if Christ is in you, all the, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Guess what, guys? You have the Trinity living in you. Now, if you just sit there and go, huh, that's great, then there's something wrong with you. If you can't take that, and I know you don't understand it and you can't fully grasp it, but you have the Trinity, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living in you. And we wonder, you know, man, I just can't. This Christian life is really hard. I really can't pull it off. And yet you have power beyond your wildest imaginations. And he says, and it will prove you to be my disciples. By this we know that we're in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. I want to walk like Jesus. How do I do that? Through the power that's been planted within me. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's how I do it. Not in the flesh. First John goes on and says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit he has given us. The spirit is just the proof. The spirit is the evidence. He's the down payment. He lets us know that we have this incredible power within us so that we can walk as Jesus walked, that we can live like he lived, that we can emulate him, imitate him, and we can be fruitful as he was fruitful. See, our behavior is to change. Why? Because we have the spirit living within us. See, John, again, Jesus tells the disciples, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I'm going to be with the Father. You can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. This is not a get out of jail free card. It's not a carte blanche for you to go ask God for whatever you want, a new car, a new bass boat. This is Jesus Christ telling you that I'm leaving, but I'm coming back in the form of the Holy Spirit, and he's going to live in you along with the Father, the Son, and you can expect great things. Great things, amazing things, because I've got the power from on high. I've got the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living in me, and so do you. That's why, again, he says you're going to have the Holy Spirit. He's going to lead you into all truth. He will be with you. He'll be in you. And it's that that makes it not a task to be performed. It's not something you need to work at. 
It's not a competitive sport. You don't have to look at the guy next to you and go, well, he's more sanctified than I am. He's more, he abides better than I do. It's not about a competition. Branches don't compete or compare. You know, again, go look at a tree. How many branches are out there going, man, he's got more leaves than I do. He's got more fruit than I do. How can I get more fruit? What do I need to do? That's not what this is about. It's about being a vehicle that God uses to do what only God can do, which requires that I simply remain, relax, and rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to let him do what he can do, not what I can do. Branches are created to do this, to abide, to to be a conduit for fruitfulness. So are you. You're just a conduit. Now, that may offend some of you. You want to be more important than that. But it's not about you being important. It's about you being fruitful, bearing fruit, producing fruit. You don't get to produce it. God does. You simply get to bear it. See, he says, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit, proving yourselves to be my disciples. And this is where we get all cattywankas and get all screwed up. It's not you proving yourself. It's God proving himself through you, through his fruit. Here's what it doesn't say. Can you produce much fruit? And when you do, can you prove to everyone that you're a disciple and your efforts can bring glory to God? That's not what this verse says. What it says is, this is to my father's glory that you bear much fruit through his power and therefore prove that you're my disciples as he does what only he can do. Self-produced fruit is false fruit. How do I know that? Look at this. There's a day coming When everyone, Jesus says, who calls out to be Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We perform many miracles in your name. But I'll say, I never knew you. Get away from me. You're like Judas. See, Judas looked like a disciple. He just wasn't one. He didn't live like one because he didn't abide. So abide in me is not a command, it's an invitation. It's, it's a positional reality. He's getting you to understand you have a relationship and it's not motivation to do something different, to live differently. It's about reliance. It's about trusting God to do what only God can do. It's not a task to be performed. It's an invitation to be enjoyed. I can abide in him and he abides in me. So I'm going to, these, these verses are in your notes. I'm going to skip through them because I've run out of time. And I want to end with these questions for you guys to discuss, and they're, they're pretty important. Why is it important that we see abiding in Christ as an invitation, not a command? I hope that's an easy answer because, guys, we live way too much of our lives trying to live up to what we think is a command, and he's just saying, abide in me. How about this one? When Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing, what kinds of things did he have in mind that we attempt to do apart from him? The easy answer is everything. We try to do everything apart from him. But he says, you can't do squat without me. You can't do anything without me. Why is it so hard for us to accept our complete reliance upon his spirit for all that we do? Then finally, have somebody read Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How could this evangelistic call by Jesus apply to how we view our sanctification? Why is it true of salvation? Why is it true of sanctification? Father, I come to you this morning and I pray that this information, there's a lot of it. May we digest it. May your Holy Spirit help us understand it, process it, apply it. More than anything, Father, may we understand that we cannot live the Christian life apart from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. 
It's impossible. And yet you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, as Peter tells us. We have all that we need. We have the Godhead living within us, and yet we still struggle. And it's because we're trying to abide in the flesh. We're trying to hang on for dear life. We're trying to do things that might please you and make you happy with us. Father, would you help us to understand that all we need is you? We can do nothing apart from you, Jesus Christ. And yet we know that I can do all things because of you. May we live in that reality. May we trust in that truth. May we live it out in daily life that our conduct may truly reflect what's in us. The spirit of God. The hope of the world. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.